Right, hello folks, um, and welcome along to a new episode. Today I have a special guest, and it's Shane Bowitz, who is a wet plate photographer. And wet plate photography has been around virtually from the start of um, when photography was first invented. And in less than 10 years, Shane has produced... I think around about 4,000, it might actually be more than that, wet plate images of individuals. He also has a large series of images that he is doing and is looking to produce over the next 20 years of Northern Plains Native Americans. So welcome to the show, Shane. Thank you, George. It's nice to be on. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you very much. Now, most of us who um, start off with photography normally start off sort of 35 mil as a youngster. You know, parents have got a 35 mil camera. Then we progress to possibly medium format. And then, you know, if we're lucky, we will um, progress into large format. But as a, a modern format, so, you know, using negatives or um, positive paper. But you decided to go down the wet plate route um why was that well i don't think there was that much thought into it i mean you're you're describing um chronologically you know how people should do this um i i never owned a camera so um i didn't know what i was getting myself into so this this whole process of uh figuring this large format photography out and figuring out the wet plate collodion process um just in my back warehouse it was just uh that's all i ever you know, new, and it's the only thing that I was pursuing. So I, I didn't know about all these other things. So, um, you know, when you don't know what you're getting into, um, you don't know what to expect and you, you don't have game plans really. So it was just like, I knew that I wanted to make a wet plate. Um, you know, people have asked me why, and that I, you know, to this day, I really, I still don't have that answer. I was 44 years old at the time. Um, I never had any sort of creative outlet whatsoever. And um, this process gave me a, a way of uh, being an artist for the first time in my life. And um, it's been very, very rewarding chasing this, uh, this, uh, this process, trying to improve on my work. Um, and um, here we are, um, you know, a little bit over eight years into this. And um, I just I'm very excited about the next uh, the years to come. Ah, OK, um, now. I know a little bit about um, the collodion or wet plate collodion process because um, I, one of my interests was or still is uh, military um, campaigns and things like this. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the big interests that I had was American Civil War, mm. which um, was photographed basically in this Exclusively. way. Exclusively. Yeah, yeah in, exclusively. In, you, you had people like um, um, Matthew Brady and uh, Alexander Gardner, who were two of the world, well, yeah, two of quite well-known people that actually um, photographed that. So I, I kind of understand the process. Not that I know the theory of it, to say, um, not not the practical side. But now with the way that they. Um, shot their um, film now and the the main reason that that I was interested in that was because they actually shot um, stereo images Mm -hmm. 
which was quite which is another passion that I've got uh, uh, within photography but most of the times when they were shooting their images they shot on clear glass um, plate so they, they they ended up with an, an actual negative and mm-hmm. then they could then reproduce this as um, a print did you ever think about going down that route or was it always the um, black ambrotype for you or did, did was it that you saw black glass ambrotypes and that's what you decided to do and you didn't know about the other process or um, yeah yeah, that's a good question. I actually have a, a Brady business card, an original Brady business card in oh, a very uh, nice. acrylic sleeve just three feet from where I'm sitting right now. So it's um it, it's on display here and it's re- really sought after. So I've, I was excited to have that as part of my collection. But to answer your question, um, I started shooting on, so we should explain to your listeners the positives and negative uh, thing. First of all, mm-hmm. um, they, they shot negatives for a reason. So that's, for instance, if... Um, you know, Sitting Bull would have came into my studio, and as he did with Orlando Scott Goff in Bismarck um, back in, you know, 1882 and sat for Orlando Scott Goff, um, you wouldn't have shot a, a, a positive image like I make on black glass. You would have shot a negative image, like you said, on clear glass, giving you a, a negative. Um, understand we didn't have scanners then. Um, we didn't have copy machines. We had no way to reproduce images at that point. Um, so what they wanted to do is they wanted to shoot everything on clear glass. And from that clear glass, um, they would make contact prints and um, albumin prints. You had mentioned the stereotype, uh, stereo view cards. Um, but there was also, you know, um, cyanotypes and Van Dykes. And there's many, many different processes that you can do contact prints. So when those photographers were making those images, their thoughts were, well, I, I want to sell things. I want to make money. So if I, if I get that one photograph of Sitting Bull, um, it doesn't do me any good if it's a, it's a positive, if that's a one-off. Um, mm. it, it's an, actually an object at that point. Um, but with the negatives, the prints are the end game. And, and the negative, the glass, if I handed you a glass negative, I mean, it's not nice to look at, um, you know, holding it up to the light. I mean, it's hard to see. Um, but, you know, that's where I'd never, prints were kind of like, um, you know, a way of, reproducing photocopying images and that's what they were interested in so you could produce a thousand photographs of of sitting bowl and and sell them each for a dollar for per se and 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 that, that makes sense and then you could say oh i sold my first thousand i'm going to make another thousand prints and, and you could do that and and that's what these photographers wanted to do um me i'm i'm i like the idea of this one-off object um similar to like uh, for instance a painting um, you know, you can you can scan with the modern technology uh, a painting. You can, you know, let's say, for instance, a Van Gogh. You can scan that Van Gogh. Um, you can take a photograph of that Van Gogh. There's other ways of reproducing that image onto some other medium. Um, but understand it's never a Van Gogh. And, no. and that's really why I am stuck. Um, and I shouldn't say stuck because stuck has kind of like a, a negative um, feel to it. I'm not stuck. I'm I'm here because I want to be here. I want to make one-off images. Um, and obviously, I can take these plates with modern technology, and I can lay them on my scanner, and I can, you know, I've blown up 
big, huge murals for the side of buildings that are 10 feet tall from eight by 10 black glass amber types. I, 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 technology today allows me to reproduce my work, which they would not have been available to them back in the day. So you, you have to put yourself back in the day. You have to understand the technologies that were available to the photographers and what their intent was. And my intent is to make one-off images. And, and I do scan my work and every, you've never seen one of my original plates. So, um, but you've seen no. plenty of my work. Yes. Um, yes. And when the students come in, um, the first time, I mean, one of the, uh, often the people say that know my work, or that are familiar with my work online and see digital scans or even, even prints for that matter, they come in and then they, they I've got hundreds of uh, eight by 10 black glass amber types on the walls here. And they're just amazed at um, how they really have never seen my work before. And I tell the students that um, they'll see a print around, uh, you know, under a piece of glass or something. They say, well, I just love that, that, that work of yours. And I, and I argue with the students. I say, well, that's not my work. And they, and they look at me and I, I do this exercise for a reason. They look at me peculiar, like, what do you mean that, that you took that photograph? And yeah, I took that photograph, but it's not my work. And my, my point to them and what I'm trying to stress to them is that unless it's um, pure silver on glass, it's not my work. It's a it's a it's a pale representation of my work, and that's that's just how I feel, and that's only my perspective. I know I have many wet plate brothers and sisters that their end game is the print. That they you know the negative you know they do the best they can to get these perfect negatives that will um, give them the best prints, and and the prints are their game. But my game is um, original black ass amber types because if I if I break one of these, it can never be replaced. There's there's no Oh, um, you know, and I've I've been in a, a situation where a sitter comes in and maybe I took their portrait and I and I broke the plate and then I sit them right back down a couple minutes later. Um, I can never get back to that 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 previous print print that I lost because that was George 18 minutes ago. Yeah, and no, I can't I get back to George 18 minutes ago, even in the same setting, same camera, same chemicals, same sitter, everything, same light. Um, I just can't get back to you 18 minutes ago. And, and that's what I've been chasing. And I've said that many times is that, and it's a, it's a really good question, but um, I have made um, wet plate negatives and I've done contact prints from my negatives. And, and I think I did it more of just an exercise to understand um, what it, what it is and to understand the difference between the two processes it's the same same process the negative and the positive there's nothing change in the chemistry or the way that we make them other than um you know what the medium is are we putting it on clear glass if you put it on clear glass you can shine um, shine light through it and you can make contact prints if you put it on black glass you have what you have and and that's where i, I tend to live is um you know black glass amber types uh, okay yeah uh, uh, yeah and, um, uh, because I've got to be honest. I I don't ever remember seeing the um, black glass amber sites until I actually saw your work, or I, I saw because I've seen your um, document or the documentary that was made about you and you, your working process within your studio. And uh, but I've got to be honest. That was the first time I'd actually seen um, a black glass uh, wet plate. But all, well, all the ones I've seen before have always been the negative type. Have you uh, have you ever seen a tintype? I yes, I have seen tintypes. Okay, so yes. you've seen you've seen what I'm producing. It just was on tin. So I, I have a bunch of examples here in the studio. Of I mean, it was very popular. So for instance, um, you wanted to get a picture of your of your wife, and and many of the 
things that I bought as tintypes, like I would buy it on eBay or whatever as a tintype, and I get it back to the studio. And I always, what I always do, I have this fun little exercise where I take these historic images apart. I take the frame apart. I take the glass out. I clean it. And, you know, I, I want to inspect it. Maybe there's a hidden message somewhere that I don't see under the, the casing or anything like that. So I always take them out, make sure I see how the artist put this this framed piece together a lot of times are those brass little frames i think you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah but i buy it as a tintype and again a tintype for your listeners is no different than an amber type it's just on tin instead of black glass um i buy these tintypes and i take them apart and i find out they're made out of glass so i'm sure if you've seen any number of um you know positives in little cases um, some of those are um, some of those are amber types. You just you think they're a tin type. It, it's hard to determine unless you take it out of the, you know, take it apart and, and inspect it. Ah, right. Ah, I see. Yeah, because um, uh, well, uh, most famous um museum that actually has quite a big uh, photography um, collection is the Victoria and Albert Museum. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, images going back uh, right, you know, right to the beginning of um, photography, and they they've got uh, like daguerreos in there and tintypes and stuff like that. But I didn't realise that some of them could actually be uh, ambrotypes as and well. You would know it unless they just. I mean, obviously they would know what they have on, on hand. But my my point is, I even bought a tintype once. A, a little baby tintype. It was only like two by three inches tall uh, in size. I brought it back to the studio, took the case apart, and I took it out, and it was a piece of a shard of red ruby glass. And you couldn't tell that it wasn't uh, a tintype or an amber type. You couldn't tell anything. And then I hold it up to the light, and I could see red through the glass. So this artist would, for whatever reason, um, chose to shoot on ruby glass and have a black backing. So it, it, it's rather interesting, um, the, you know, the different ways. And I try to learn, and then I, I see whether or not the artist, did they varnish the, uh, the plate? Because these images are made out of pure silver. So over time, silver will tarnish. It becomes black. And um, so what uh, artists did back in the Victorian era is they would pour shellac or, or a sand rack varnish over the, the silver molecules, locking out any oxygen. They figured out if you don't have oxygen that can get to the silver molecules, you don't get any tarnishing. And um, so I, I always inspect these historic plates, um, and tr- being very delicate and careful not to uh, disrupt anything, but clean the case and, and make sure that they're in good condition. And then I know what I have and I put it back into its case and I put on the shelf to share with other people. But it's 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 fascinating, um, you know, when you dissect something that was put together 100, 145 years ago. It's a it's a, it's a very I, I've always enjoyed doing that because you never really know what you have. You you know you always wait and I've never happened to me. It's but you're kind of waiting for that fortune cookie kind of moment where there's a little piece of paper in the back that has a note scrolled onto a lover or something like that and a date. You know what I mean? These are the yeah, these yeah, are the romantic yeah. these are the romantic things that I'm looking at. It's you know in the you know finding something in the oyster. You know what I mean? Finding that pearl in the oyster is kind of um you never know what you're, yeah when you're buying something just blind online you just don't know what you have and and a lot of the tin types a lot of the amber types i do have some of the amber types i do have i should say historic ones were sold to me as tin types and they actually were made out of glass and and people just don't know they think oh it's a, that's what it is it's a tin type and the, you know the seller just never they either don't they're naive or they just never took the steps to really investigate is this on glass or is it on 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 tin and and talking about the the history of the, the, those particular um, images, 
obviously, like, like you say, uh, there's very little um, history that that you can actually find about them because that the, you know you, you probably don't even know who the photographer was, who the person was. But you make sure with um, your images that everything and every person that is in that photograph is named on the back. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been very diligent about that. Every plate, and I actually, um, every one of my plates that I've ever made has a plate number as well. So I have a sequential number that allows me to index and it comes very in handy. You know, um, there's a museum in Switzerland that contacted me last week and they're gonna, they decided today to take 15 of my plates um, in into Switzerland and you know having these plate numbers and having everything labeled properly it's just really nice so on the back of all my plates and, and it's I don't have any I got to be honest of and I probably maybe have 25 30 original plates here that mm -hmm. you know that historic ones that I share with guests because I, I want to show them what a 145 160 year old plate looks like um, yeah it, as an exercise to say, hey, look, it looks, you know, this is what it's going to look like 160 years from now, which you can't say that for other photographs. Um, you know, I've taken them all apart and I don't get the name and everything. I don't get who the photographer is. I don't get what even continent they were on. I, I don't get the date. I don't get anything. So on the back of my plate, there's always um, the date, the images made, the plate number. Um, I've been for the last six or seven years putting the date of birth of the sitter. So we kind of have this point of reference of how old is the person that's in the photograph at the time the photograph was taken. Then I have their first, middle, and last name formally, um, if they have any titles like doctor or PhD or anything like that. And then if the plate has a title, I'll give it a title. Um, you know, and then I always has the bottom of the plate always says by Shane Balkowicz, Nostalgia Glass Wet Plate Studio, Bismarck, North Dakota, United States. So when someone finds in these objects, hundreds of years from now, um, they will know all the questions that you had asked earlier is who and when and where and why, because these are the things that these questions are invoked um, when you look at a portrait of someone. I mean, these portraits, these 25 portraits or whatever I have, these antique uh, photographs, uh, wouldn't they be more valuable to me if I knew it was Susie Jane and, you know, it was taken in Ireland and, and you know, her nickname was Missy or, you know what I mean? Like all these little things. Um, I think it adds value to the portrait. I, I think a lot of these historic portraits, um, and I've got some photo albums here from the Victorian era of, of uh, albumin prints, uh, complete photo albums, front to back, all the same people, and you know the the names are lost. So nobody after them knew who the photographs were of, and then it loses its it's no longer special to you. But if you found the Griffin family photo album, I mean, I think you would cherish that, right? Yeah, well, but it would have I mean, label properly. Yeah, well, that is um, uh, one of the problems that that, that I've got is that um, my mum passed away a few years ago, yeah, and I inherited um, all of her, all the family photographs. So the photographs that are of like me and my sister and my parents going, you know, going back to sort of mid sixties and that because I'm still alive, I, I know who they are, but right. there's photographs there of people. I just haven't got a clue who they are. They're, they're members of my family in some way, but because there's no um, names written on the back or the, the albums they're in, that there's, there's, there's no history there. So in all honesty, that they could be, as far as I'm concerned, they're strangers. They any, yeah. They're strangers. And we're only talking, you know, uh, 
a 50 year probably yeah 50 to 60 year time span where um you know in another you know anything happens to me my daughters get these photographs they're going to look at them and go we haven't got a clue who these people are either you know it's um no, they won't. it's really it's really difficult and one of the things is as well my eldest daughter's in uh, is interested in ancestry and she's done a lot um searching family the, the, the two family trees and she's found a lot of information about people and you know even just going back sort of one or two generations she asks about these people and i can tell her about them and she'll say well is there any photographs of them in nan's box and i say to her well there probably is but i wouldn't be able to point them out to you because i just don't know who they are yeah that's that's my theory about why these you know that's why my that's a theory that i have about why some of these photographs gets discarded um because there's there's no connection if you had the connection if that was aunt you know aunt aunt joan you would yep. know it's aunt joan and, and that portrait would hold more value to you knowing that that was your mom's sister or something for instance i mean there is significance there um just a photograph of a lady sitting on a bench you know not a spectacular photograph or any artistic merit to it whatsoever it's hard to get attached to it um you know but then there are historic photographs that have artistic merit and um you know the photographer took um huge leaps to get that photograph just right and you you know what i'm talking about and yeah, and, yeah. It, and then the photograph of a complete stranger can hold you know, it can have some worth just on its the beauty of it. And and that's what I'm trying to do here in my studio. I'm trying to use the light. I'm trying to use my chemical process. Um, and I'm trying to make these photographs that, um, you know, have some kind of merit after I'm gone. And, and, and the fact that we know who they are, who's in the image, um, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, for instance, my photograph of Evander Holyfield, the four-time heavyweight champion of the world. It can just be, you know, uh, the butcher in town or whoever it may be. It doesn't matter. Um, all these images have value because these are, this is who we are today. Yeah, uh, most definitely. And, and, and that's the thing as well. I mean, it, it, if the person you take the portrait of has gone, you know, to the, you know, the, the time and effort to have their portrait taken and also the, the photographer is, especially in the, in the process that you use, because, you know, like, like you say, it, it could be, you know, 15, 20 minutes uh, just, just to get an image. It, if you've gone to that time as well, you know, put that time in, it, it, it needs, or it's nice to be able to, you know, in 50 years time, be able to look at that and say who it was and who, who the, the image was taken by. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the intent of the photographer, right? I yeah, mean, we can all we can all grab our iPhone today and snap 50 pictures and and not have much intent. Um, with a wet plate, pro I mean, if if you came into my studio right now, George, you just showed up, just you know, knocked on the door two minutes ago and said, "Well, can we do my portrait?" I mean, I'm looking at half hour, 45 minutes just to get ready to do your portrait, getting my mm -hmm. chemicals in the baths, getting the plates cleaned. Um, you know, um, even if I don't have the plates clean, I got to cut some glass by hand. Um, I mean, they, so I'm looking at, you know, half hour just to even think about um, making your portrait. Uh, you know, there's intent involved. Like, okay, we're going to make wet plates today. And, and on, um, we should tell your listeners, um, I shoot on Fridays. I, I run my online business Monday through Thursday and, and Fridays is my creative day. So I get in here around 7.45 in the morning and I, I get out of here about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. 
And on any given day, I mean, it's a really productive day if I get five or six images the whole day. Oh, okay. You know, I'm at multiple sitters, and, and I've had as many, you know, I've done as many as 15 plates in a day with multiple sitters. Um, but, you know, if we, uh, you know, I've got a couple of young ladies coming in on Friday. I've got a friend coming in. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna make probably make four or five, six plates at, at most, and that and that's for a whole day. I've had photographers come into my studio with their digital cameras, capturing behind the scenes or whatever they wanted to do, and and they 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 take 900 photographs. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, because it's just you know you can just burn through anything with a a, a digital camera. Is your um is there a reason why you only shoot? on a, a Friday, not, not, not that particular day, but just one day out of a week. I mean, most of us, um, in the, in the lower reaches of photography, you know, if, if I, you know, when I'm in work, I, I work in a factory, so I tend to have, you know, it's a pretty boring job. So my mind can drift off. And most of the time I'm, you know, thinking, oh, if, if, if I could just get out, if I could get out of work an hour early, I could go and do a bit of photography here. And, you know, it, so, do you have that same issue or are you very regimented that, that it's just one day a week that you actually do your um, photography? It's a good question. And, and everyone who knows me personally knows that chain creates on Friday and, and Friday, why Fridays? I mean, why did that come about? It was, um, it was uh, when I first started, I was maybe making plates for maybe six months and I had already got my first exhibition. Um, with the state of North Dakota, there's uh, an art institute here that was going to, they wanted to get like 30 or 40 plates of mine and, and put them on exhibition over a two year period. Um, it was called Souls of Silver was my first exhibition. I'm looking up at the poster here on the wall. So it was called Souls of Silver. And um, they wanted my work. But the problem was I didn't have any work. George. I mean, oh, okay. I didn't have any, I had no, I had no plates that I felt comfortable exhibiting. So they gave me a deadline. It was like six months down the road to I had to have, I had to have these 25 or 30 plates. And at that time I was shooting five by sevens and they gave me this deadline. And so it was like, Oh, I have got to do this every week in order to get to, um, to this goal. And uh, so that's how this Friday thing started so that there was nothing special about Fridays, but um, it's nice having, because I, like I said, I'm a businessman. I've got to pay for this fiasco. Um, this is a very expensive process to do, um, you know, my, my large studio that I got built here. So, I mean, the other days I'm just busy, just, um, you know, and I got four children. So, I mean, I, like everyone else, I've got bills to pay and things that I have to do. So, um, but it is nice to set aside an entire day. I mean, you don't know how blessed I am. When I built the studio, I have not been to work on a Friday since I built the studio over three years ago. Um, every Friday I come in. So the Friday date, there's nothing special about that other than I knew that I had this commitment to my first exhibition. I had no work to show and I had to get some work made. So um, it was like Friday's here. I've got to, I got to put, I got to get a plate or two because I've got this deadline coming. So that's kind of how it went. But, um, but you know, there's, a, you know, it's not just grabbing a camera. You know, I mean, you know, if you had your camera in your car, you could, you know, you could get out at the side of the road and capture something or, you know, you can do whatever you want. It, it's mm -hmm. not like that with this process. So, you know, you no. it, there is a lot of preparing um, for that day and, and getting the plates ready and making sure the chemicals are fresh and everything's mixed. And so there there's an advantage to having a set day, but it's just my set day. Um, 
um, you know, there's nothing special about it other than um, I feel very blessed to be able to just, I mean, how many artists, not just photographers would, or, you know, even painters or sculptors could, you know, would just say, oh, my Friday's coming and guess what? I don't, I can focus on nothing more in my life on that day, but my work. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it, you know, I, I don't, I've never been in that position. I've never been a, you know, a, an artist for that long. So I mean, for me, it's, I cherish it, but I, I do know other artists. I do know other painters. I do know sculptors. Um, I know that they, you know, they struggle to find their time as well. And to get an eight, blo eight hour block a week uh, set aside just for yourself, if you're not a full-time artist, which I'm not, um, I think it's a, it's such a blessing. Yeah, because that, that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I know it, it, it sounds really strange um, to, to, to say this, but you're not actually a professional photographer, it, it, you know, in the sense that you earn money from doing this. You, 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 you're you sort of, you know, a, a, an amateur, really. Uh, I mean, I know that that's a kind of horrible thing to say, no, uh, you know, to see to, from, you know, when we see the work that you produce. But, you know, it's not. Like I say, you, you're not a professional in the sense that you actually make money from it. Yeah, and I just had this uh, Tony Richards who um, run, uh, you know, has his studio there, his wet plate studio. He's my my good brother has been with me since the very beginning. Tony Richards, uh, shout out to him. He's in the United Kingdom, um, fabulous wet plate artist. I we just had a conversation today, and he he joked with me. Um, he messaged me and said, "Are you?" are you finally going to consider yourself a photographer? That's what he, he sent over to me today. And I said, well, I'll, I'll call myself a photographer now, as long as I don't insult anyone. And uh, we, we had a good laugh about it. So there was this ongoing joke that I had. Um, I always considered myself more of an image maker because I, I never came up to photography. You know, my dad never taught me. My mom never was a photographer. I never went to a class. I never read books. I'd had no interest in, in photography whatsoever. Um, so I came about this a little bit differently, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, taking on wet plating as my first process. And, and again, I should say, um, if I couldn't make wet plates tomorrow, I'd give up a camera. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't grab a film camera. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't do a daguerreotype. Um, I wouldn't, um, I, th this is where I find myself. And, and I know that sounds strange, but if, if I could not practice wet plating, I, I just feel um, that I'd probably give up photography completely. And, and really? the, the, the thought of that um, is horrendous for me. Like mm. the thought of that, I had a, a, like three years ago, I had an accident, a bad accident where I cut my finger off. And, um, you know, it seems like a strange thing uh, sitting on the, uh, you know, in, in the emergency room and the doctor saying, you're going to have to go for emergency surgery right now on your hand. And, you know, a, a finger isn't, you know, it's not an arm, it's not a hand. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. It's, it wasn't that big of an injury. Um, but for me at the time, it was a big injury, right? So, um, you know, I, all I could think of is what if I can't make photographs again? And, and that, that doesn't, I don't, I don't think I've shared this with many people. Um, that doesn't seem logical, right? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. Why? But why, why was that my concern? You know what I mean? Like, why was that? You know, my biggest concern on the table was not about my finger. My biggest concern is for whatever reason, what if I couldn't do photography anymore? What if I couldn't do wet plates? And um, 
And that's when I was working out of my uh, natural, and it'd be nice to tell this story real quick, if you don't mind. Um, I no, was working out of my, my, my makeshift studio, which I called it. It was always called my makeshift studio because it was, it was essentially that. It was, a, it was a corner of my warehouse where my first studio, where I didn't have a separate dark room. So I'd have like, it's like 5,500 square feet in the back warehouse of my, my business. The entire 5,500 square feet would have to go into the dark and my sitter who's sitting in the chair waiting to get their portrait taken, right? Already composed and in the head brace and everything. They'd have to go in the dark and I'd have to go into safe lights, red lights, and, you know, load the plate and do all my all my work in the dark room. So my dark room was my studio. So there was no separation, which sounds really crazy. But um, and when I had my makeshift studio, um, I always said, I'm going to build my, my natural light studio in 10 years. It was always, you know, so another year would go by and... I'm going to build my natural light studio in 10 years. It was always in the back. It was never went, oh, it's going to go to nine years. It's going to go to eight. You know, I'm, oh, I'm only seven years away from building my natural light studio. It was always, I'm going to build my natural light studio in 10 years. And there's a problem with that. And I, I found out that problem when I had this hand injury sitting on that table. I thought to myself, well, what if this was my arm? What if I didn't get, you know, what if, what if this was more serious and I was, you know, I was at the time of the injury is about 75 yards away from my house. Um, what if I couldn't have got back to the house and my family couldn't have, you know, what if this injury would have been more significant? Um, what if I would have died? And on the table there, I made the determination that I'm not waiting 10 years. And, you know, the next one I became awake, I started designing my natural light studio because I said, you know, there's what, what am I waiting for? Who knows if I got 10 more years? If, yeah, why yeah. am I, why am I talking about? So the reason I'm, I'm calling, I'm talking to you right now from my natural light studio. The only reason I can talk to you from this, this, and it's the first natural light studio built from the ground up in the United States in over a hundred years. The only reason I'm talking to you from it is because I cut my finger off, <laughs> but it's that perception of what if I can't do photography? And then that, that dread that, oh, I can't do photographs. What if I can't do photographs? And, and again, it's a very illogical. It doesn't, I'm an oncology nurse by trade as well. I don't know if you know that. So, you know, medically, it makes no sense that you lose your index finger on your right hand or part of it yeah. on your right hand that there should be no reason why you can't make photographs. But it was, it was, it was, it was a silly thought, but it was that silly thought that drove me to say, screw this. I'm not waiting one more day. And I started that following day designing the studio and, and working on building it. I, I think it's just that, the, you, you know, it's the passion. Uh, that, that's what, it, you know, from talking to you, uh, it just sounds as though, you, you know, you've got this passion for the, this particular type of photography. And, you know, when you're actually doing it, you, you from my point of view anyway, it's, you you know you put everything into it you 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 think can i ask you a question you, you know when you you so when you're doing your photography on a, a friday and you know say eight, eight hours in there when 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 you've finished are you completely drained i'm just sometimes i'm sick yeah i see that 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 that's the passion i think that i, I you know i'm not, not i mean i feel not. feel physically sick sometimes and yeah, not I, that it was there was any it was it was a, a wonderful and usually that the feeling comes after it was like a wonderful creative day people will um i've learned something about myself over these years is that i don't you know people will come in and they want to visit and stuff while i'm creating 
it's mm-hmm. not the best time to be around me. Not not that I'm uh, abrasive or anything, but I'm really I what to say. I, I'm not going to say rude, but I'm really like you know I'm in the moment. Like yeah, you're, you're, I, you're I don't I can remember like these large collaborations that I've done with all the collaborators. I don't remember any part of it. I mean, I don't. I really don't. I remember being under the dark cloth. That's where most of my time. If I look back to a lot of these shoots, like even with Greta Thunberg um, mm-hmm. or Evander Holyfield, I mean, the times that stick in my mind from my memory are the times of me looking at that ground glass and, and doing the work, actually composing, and and I, you know what I mean. But but then you have the, all the 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 chemical side and all the the technical side that you have to get perfectly right, and if you don't, you don't get an image. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, when I'm creating and I'm really like, it's a stressful moment, like, you know, going down to standing rock in the middle of a field, getting 15 minutes with Greta Thunberg and, um, having to get two portraits, um, you know, and, and what if I got the exposure, right? I had no time for a test shot that day. F F eight, three seconds was a complete hip shot. Um, a guess in the dark and I mean, you know, hit the mark pretty well. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, but if I would have missed it one second, two seconds up or down, we would have had a dark image where you wouldn't see, oh, is that Greta? Or we would have had a blown out image. Is it, oh, is that Greta? I mean, these are things that you can't, you really can't fix, especially when you're talking about a plate that went to this, um, you know, the Library of Congress. And you're talking about a plate that went to the Nordiska Museet in her home country of Sweden. You know, an underexposed or overexposed plate really does not have a place there. No, no, of course not. You know what I mean? Like, so there's this um, requirement or this uh, this need to, like, I'm going to say, it, get it fucking right. Because if you don't, you know, the uh, the Library of Congress is off the off the table. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I mean, like I say, I, I've seen your documentary and you, you don't use a light meter, do you? No, I, I do. They're, they're called the two orbs oh, yeah. in the front of my head. Oh, right. Okay. Because so, that's what I was going to ask. How do, how do you actually um, work out what, what, what your exposure is going to be? I, I understand that, you know, in your studio. Um, you, you can work it out. Natural. It was trial and error working out in my studio, in my old studio. And then there was a new, a totally new um, level of uh, learning when I came into the natural light studio. But, you know, I, I live my exposures. I should tell you, listeners are about 10 seconds in my studio. So, I mean, you get pretty close and you get, but you still can be fooled. Um, light meters. Uh, I, I have photography friends that use light meters. Um, understand light meters are recording from what I understand. Um, they're recording, you know, obviously visible light. Um, mm-hmm. that, that Northern, you know, they're, they were made for film, the, the, the film days, right? Well, yeah. the wet plate process has a little bit of a, uh, a side note in, in regards to that, that we're using ultraviolet light that's invisible to the human eye. So I've heard that light meters aren't that effective in wet plate regardless. I do have in my studio, um, something that I did really early on cause I was uh, struggling. Um, I have a, um, a UV meter which is um, not a, a photographic instrument. It's a scientific instrument. Um, 
and all it does is gives me numbers and I don't even know what the, it's in lux and the lux I, I from what I understand is a full spectrum of light it gives you more of a full spectrum and so I know you know I could just hold it up you know into my studio and it, oh it's like 460 I, I can get I can get away with uh you know a nine second exposure there if it's 210 I've got a you know, and, and that number is arbitrary. It doesn't matter what that number is. I just, I've used it since I've been in here. So I just know, or if it jumps up to 800, I know, Jesus, I'm, I'm a, like a six second exposure. So I do use a, a light meter, but it's not a, it's not made for photography. It's more of a scientific instrument. And I figured that out because, um, you know, the, the a majority of the light that this process adores is light that is invisible to the human eye. So oh, okay. it's in, it's in the UV spectrum, you know, versus the the you know the infrared spectrum on the opposite side. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about is that the light that I'm actually using to make my portraits, um, mm. we can't see. That's to say, I could get a light bulb that produced ultraviolet light in the spectrum that's invisible to the human eye, right? I mean, there's outside of our range with the human eye. And I could make a wet plate in the dark. If I, okay. if, if someone was crazy enough to make a light bulb that produced the, the UV that was invisible, theoretically, do you, do you see where I'm going with this? That yeah, I'm yeah, using yeah, invisible definitely. light to make images. So the light that I see bounce off my sister's face every Friday, that's not really the light that I'm, the majority yeah, of the light yeah. that I'm using. Yeah, yeah. The light that I'm using, yeah, I can't yeah, even I see. It's interesting, right? And yes, most definitely. I mean, it... it like I say, it, you know, for a, a, um, a process that's, I don't know, 160 years old, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it just seems marvelous that, you know, we can still create that today. Well, if they could, you know, I would argue that if they could do it back then, we should definitely be able to do it today because of all of our technology. And I would argue um, when they abandoned this process in about 18, and we could tell your listeners as well, about 18, in the 1880s, they came out with the, the dry plate process. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it was where they didn't have to pour all these chemicals. And, you know, if my plate dries, I lose it. I lose the image. So you're standing mm-hmm. in the middle of a field with Greta Thunberg on an 80 degree day. Um, you don't have really a lot of time to sit there and figure out what you're going to do. Um, but they came up with the dry plate process and even Goff, Orlando Scott Goff wrote in the Bismarck Tribune back in the 1880s, he called it the, the quick, the lightning process, he called it, which is, the, which we figured out was the dry plate process. And he was able to make, he was, he marveled with the Bismarck Tribune. He came out and had an article with them. He marveled that he was able to make over 70 plates in one day. And essentially what he would do is he would have these dry plates and he probably bought them from Kodak Eastman or some company mm-hmm. and you just keep them in dark sleeves and you could just load one after another and after another and you can about imagine the revelation that he had um and and the fact that he didn't have to have his dark room with him that he didn't have to process and develop and fix that print that plate within moments of it being made he could just store them all the way in the dark and come back to the studio three weeks later and and, and you know and, and develop them um it freed him up from the dark room and we he was on his way to moving from the old process to a newer process, which would be similar to what we do with, you know, sheet film and so forth. You could, you know, you, if you had sheet film, you can go out in the outside and you could, you could make a hundred portraits in a day or a hundred images in a day if you wanted to with, you know, with that technology. So, um, so in about the 1880s, wet plate fell out of favor with photographers because they figured out how to free the photographer up from a dark room. So when I was down there with Greta in the middle of the field, I have a, 
a portable dark room, which is a germination tent with these red bicycle lights that hangs on it. And this big shroud I pull over my body and I work in this two by four cube. I stick my mm -hmm. whole head in there and for my torso up and I do all my work in there. And it's, it's very daunting and very difficult. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't a good enough reason, George, it was not even close to a good enough reason to abandon this process because to me, this is still the best photographic process man has ever invented. And, um, you know, people will come back and say, oh, well, color came into play and all these things. And it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is the most beautiful photographic process man has ever invented. And um, nobody's going to convince me differently. Yeah, that's it. yeah I, um, I, I agree with you. And like I say, that, that that's your passion coming out. You know, you, 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 I can hear it in your voice, the way the way you talk about the process, that, you know, you, you do have a big passion for it. I, I'd like to ask you, though, when when you, you know, first done your your first plate and uh, which I think was of your brother, was that correct? October 4th, 2012, of my brother, Chad. Yeah, so think, you know, obviously you, you got the plate, you're ecstatic that, you know, something's come out, you, you, you know, after all the hard work getting a camera, you know, I think you, you finally managed to get a plate. What, what did you think that you were going to do next? I mean, were you just sort of looking and thinking, okay, um, I can make these plates of my family? Because I, I, I'm, well, I'm not sure, but... I'm guessing the uh, you didn't have an idea that you were going to, you know, all of a sudden be going out and doing this, your Native American series and be photographing Evander Holyfield, even Greta Thunberg, you know? I, I just thought, wow. I mean, we're so, I can remember it very well. And, and I, should, I should say, I don't know if you know, but I have a series called My Brother Through the Years that I capture his portrait with his shirt mm -hmm. off with a black background, five by seven. So I go back to five by seven from eight by 10, just to, to honor this, this series. I take a portrait of him every day, every year on that day. So we, we, I have a, you know, I've been doing this for eight years. So I got nine plates of my brothers as he's been getting older over these nine years, taken all on that day to celebrate that first plate of mine. And my brother lost his wife to cancer in that time. Um, and um, you can see it on him. I mean, you mm -hmm. can you can see this huge transformation of of, of when he, you can see when he was struggling, and then, and then then you can see how he you know his since then he's gotten remarried, he's had a couple of children, um, you know you can see how he recovered, and um, the idea for that series uh, we're going to just continue to do that as long as him and I are alive, and upon his death or my death, um, the entire series is going to be given to his oldest daughter. Um, oh, okay. But uh, at the time, to answer your question, I'm sorry I got on a sidetrack there, but I, I'm, oh, try okay. I'm trying to give you some, you know, some information I haven't shared all the time. Um, uh, I didn't, you know, it was like, oh, we got an image. I can't believe it. We were high five and it was just, it was absolutely stupendous, you know, but you could have, I could have taken my phone out of my pocket and got a better portrait of my brother. <laughs> Right? Like, I mean, yeah, seriously, yeah. so what, why in the hell are you so enamored with this getting a photograph and you're not even a photographer in this manner? Why is that? I don't, I can't answer that. Um, I, I could never have expected anything. So I just knew that I could maybe improve on that. 
And that's what I continue to do. And I think at the beginning of the show, you had mentioned how many plates. I'm just walking over to my little piece of paper here. Um, the next plate that I make on this Friday will be 3,783. Oh, okay. So that's how many plates that I've made in um, in this last, um, you know, eight years. Um, but um, so it was just a bunch of my family, my, you know, it was my brother and then it was my wife and my kids and, you know, my aunts and uncles and, you know, anyone you know, anyone you knew, you know, and then, and then the word kind of got out about my work and then strangers started coming out. And then like the first photographers started flocking to my, um, to my, uh, to my studio. Um, Mike Lalonde, who his dad was the main photographer for the Bismarck Tribune for 20 years. And Mike Lalonde has been a photographer for 60 years. Um, you know, he said, well, I want to come over and see what you're doing. And, and then it just, you know, it just kind of like, that's very nerve wracking when you're sitting there practicing, you can about imagine um, a historic process that you know nothing about. You haven't even grasped it yourself. I mean, I, and I've said this before, I think I went six months of ma making portraits before I even realized I was using light. Like it didn't right. even, it didn't even occur to me that, oh, shit, I can put all my lights on one side and I get to the shadow side. I mean, that didn't even, I mean, those are simple concepts in photography, right? Yeah, yeah. I had, but... no, you know, Rembrandt lighting. And I mean, there's, you know, you can go on and on and on. There's, there's so many. And that's why I didn't call myself a photographer for so many years, because I knew that I didn't have that. But to be practicing this process and then to have a real photographer into the studio and show them this, um, you know, it's almost like having like Michael Jordan over to the house to show him how to shoot a, a free throw. You know what I mean? Or, you know what I mean? Like some yeah. Hall of Fame football player. Oh, this is how you throw a football. I mean, you know what I mean? Like when would – and that's extreme. But do you know what, do you know what I'm saying? Like that's, yeah, how yeah, it, that's how it felt. And like when Evander Holyfield decided to come in and, you know, you can about imagine he's probably one of the most photographed men of all time. I mean, yeah. without a doubt. I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of photographs of this man. And you can about imagine him going into the ESPN studio and, and you know, high-end studios in New York and, and, you know, having his portrait taken by the most exclusive photographers in the world over his career, right? Mm -hmm. And he's yeah. coming into my makeshift studio where he has to sit in the darkroom as I'm pouring plates and loading camera. Um, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. And then to have that within, you know, two and a half years of even taking my first photograph, to have that go into the Smithsonian as the first ever portrait of Evander Holyfield accepted into their portrait gallery. I mean, you yeah. have to you have to pinch yourself and say, what what the hell is that all about? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a long process, but obviously, the the you know the it's the historical side of it. Uh, you know what you're doing historically is, uh, you know, you you've more or less revived, uh, you know, a, a process that's been long forgotten. And you saying about, you know, a, a photographer that's been doing it for a lot, yeah, many a year. It, it, it's it's a completely different thing, you know. That the, I, I understand that you know you, you'd be nervous because someone who who is a photographer comes into your studio but but they've probably never ever seen that process done you know no, i by, mean they, by they never do and that's why i mean i've had tens of photographers come in from all over the country to, to see the works done here but i want to i want to just correct you just for a moment george um i i didn't i mean i i'm not solely responsible for reviving this 
this process. There, there's about a thousand of us in the world, which again, you know, you have 8 billion people. So a thousand wet plate artists, it's not a lot. And there's a, a small subset of those thousand create on a weekly basis, understand. Mm -hmm. But there's a, probably about a thousand people that could make a wet plate if they, if they needed to on any given day. Um, they, you know, there've been people that I, I, I heard from an expert, um, that you know there was as few as eight to ten wet plate artists back in the 1980s so i'm not solely responsible for um you know keeping wet plate alive it's my it's been my duty and my honor and it's what i'm trying to do but there's been a whole team and, and a lot of people came to my aid at the beginning to, you know like what you know and and a lot of people put me down at the beginning a lot of these uh professional photographers that were doing wet plating because the normal transition is like you said you start small and then you're a photographer for 20 years you're accomplished you're achieved and now you want to really test yourself and then you say i'm going to go do wet plating or i'm going to do a daguerreotype and mm -hmm. you challenge yourself i mean really challenge yourself but understand you have 20 years of understanding light and apertures and and all the things that go into photography right yeah yeah i didn't have any of that stuff so there was a lot of um blowback as well as this non-photographer um and getting you know i've been i've been kicked out of four wet plate groups on on facebook so if that gives you an idea of the the blowback that i've received from different people um um so there has with you know but i i try to think about the positives i don't want to talk about the negatives but there's been so many wonderful people that and and i started the group of, of friends of frederick scott archer so and if any of your listeners are interested in wet plate photography go on to facebook type in friends of Frederick Scott Archer. Frederick, Frederick Scott Archer is the man who invented this in 1851. Um, we, we're about 4,000 of us, uh, and not all of those people are practicing, um, obviously, wet plating, but they, they, they like the process and they're following along as us artists work. Um, it's a safe haven for new photographer, uh, you know, new wet plate artists. Um, and I, I had to make that group out of necessity um, from being um, chased out of other groups. Um, and um you know that i'll never quite understand um one of the groups i got kicked out of the the week that my evander holyfield portrait was taken so um i don't know if that's telling <laughs> if that's telling at all but um so there's my point is and what i really want to stress here is that there was a lot of people that came before me that were revitalizing this wet plate process long before me um and, but ever since i've taken up the challenge i've been trying to be a a student of the game i've been trying mm -hmm. to be um someone that uh you know uh shouts the the um the positive things of this process to the heavens and, and tries to demonstrate i have students from the university come out and the junior college come out every year i'm continuously doing talks and podcasts and 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 articles um there's been hundreds of articles written about my work over the years um I, i'm just trying to be um a um a student of the game and, and trying to be an advocate for this process and um and and if someone wants to um, you know, there's been many photographers that have been accomplished that have come through my studio that I've actually taught wet plating. And there's people creating wet plates today because I taught them and I took time out of my day to teach them. And this, the thing about it is, um, this isn't my process. Understand, George. I mean, this yeah. is Frederick Scott Arch's process. And I do, I did do my history and I do know about his life. And, and there isn't a lot of written about him, but what we do know is that he died poor. Um, he didn't make any money off this process. So it was a gift from this man to the world. So who 
says that any one person is responsible or owns this process. That's to say, I don't keep secrets from people. Um, mm. Photographers, uh, Benny um, from um, New Jersey just came in a month and a half ago, spent the whole weekend with me. I showed him free of charge how to do a wet plate, um, even let him walk out of the studio with one of my cameras um, so he could do, he could do this. Um, so there's no secrets. And, mm. and, you know, there, there are some people that try to, you know, to make this, um, you know, like it's taboo or it can't be done or anything like that. But I, if there's anyone in the world that's proof positive that anyone could do wet plating, it's me. If you put your mind to it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. If, and if, yeah. if you're dedicated, if you're, if you're willing to invest and you're willing to take your lumps and you're willing to, I mean, all the things that I've had to overcome over this last eight years if you're willing to do that anyone could do this so there's there's no you know art you know there's no there should be no secrets and and you know i have us brothers and sisters and that's what i call them my, my wet plate brothers and sisters we share stuff all the time little tips like and we've improved that you know a lot of people have improved on archer's process we do things a little bit differently than he does as far as handling plates and so forth um why wouldn't we i mean why wouldn't you you know, make those, uh, why wouldn't you make those little changes to improve on the process? Um, but, but understand the process remains his and he didn't yeah. make any money on it. And, you know, you know, that knowledge, you know, I don't think that, you know, you know, it's something that people should make, you know, money on. I mean, it's, it's not your knowledge. It's, it was his knowledge and he gave it to all of us and, um, it's, it's free reign for, uh, to use it however you want. Um, and and I'm I'm so happy to see artists and stuff being able to make and and, and make a living or even uh, make money uh, making their their works because uh, you know it's 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 hard for an artist nowadays to to find a niche and and to find customers and to, and to do those things these these are all wonderful things but as far as you know the process going and keeping secrets I'm an open book and um, yeah. I I don't think that doesn't sit well with everyone um, but I could care less. Yeah, I, I was talking to uh, you, you. I think you know Simon Riddle. Yes, you know Simon? Much, yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was talking to him. Well, we we had a little chat um, a couple of weeks ago or so because um, he's doing. Uh, what is it, is it called? Uh, it, it, it's to do with mental health. He's and he's doing collodion um, process. We talked on the phone about forty-five days ago. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I was talking to him because um, he put up an image that he'd produced on Instagram uh, a few weeks ago and I was just totally blown away by it it was you know the the, the, the subject matter it was a self-portrait of him but mm -hmm. it's just the sub subject matter and pretty but, pretty raw pretty raw right yeah yeah very raw very raw but um I I, I understood where he was coming from when we were just because he actually took the image down and you know I I I contacted him just to ask him why, because I, you know, I, it, I, I don't know. It, it, there was something about it that touched me, you know? Mm. And, um, yeah. So we had a little chat and, you know, he did mention you and, um, I've got original plates of his that he sent me and he's got my book and I've said work of mine to him. So yeah, oh, right. these, okay. these are, I mean, he's my brother and, yep. and I really feel like that there's this connection between us, you know, this small little group of people trying to keep this preserve this alive um so you know we're all trying to be an advocate um in our in our own ways but yeah he's uh 
yeah, he's a he's a great guy. He's done his own documentary as well. That's how I got introduced to him. He did his documentary about those uh, those oil or oh the oil the oil tanks in oil Scotland. Tanks yeah, and stuff. yeah. So yeah. I mean, that's that was the night I met him. Talked to him on the phone, watched his documentary, and called him, and then right. he was oh. doing wet plates. So, um, yeah, he's. I mean, it's 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 these things, these relationships, right? But he that that's a perfect example. Like uh, you know, he's asked me some questions. I've helped him. I've asked him some questions. He's helped me. Um, we we throw things back and forth at each other. Um, you know, simple things like what kind of lens you use, or you know what I mean. Like, well, how are you actually cleaning your plates? Are you using Windex, or are you using the, you know, are you using calcium carbonate and Everclear like I do, uh, which is called whiting from the Victorian era? Are you using that? I mean, just little things. There's all these little things that we can all help each other with. And um, I'm an open book. I don't, I don't keep any secrets from anyone. And, and if someone wants to practice this um, process and wants to take it on. Who am I to say no to? And and I'm always here to help someone. So I'm I'm always I'm fielding multiple questions a day from all over the world from people having th- different questions. I was just talking to a gentleman today who was asking me about the particular glass that I have in my studio and and, and you know and then I referenced a, a book by Dr. Raymer that I read from 1906 that I actually used the pitch and the size of his windows and his design from his windows from his 1906 book um, mm-hmm. in in my own studio. So it, it's just sharing of information and there's a brotherhood and 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 I just I I very much I, I adore that. I'm part and, of a club that I was never I've never been a part of a club before. Right. Okay. And you you mentioned brotherhood. Um I'd like I, I you know if you don't mind but um only if you've got time. I'd like I'd like to move on to your um Native American series. Sure. Um which you've been shooting over well maybe, what the last 6, six years, 7 six years, years yeah. 6 years. Um and uh, you know could you just briefly give us, uh, you know, an indication of how, how you actually started to um, put this series together? Sure. Um, again, a roundabout way, just how I, it seems like I, that's how I start everything, but one thing leads into the next. And and that's why I always said, always be open to things. You know, if you're open to things, things, things can come your way. So I was, um, you know, doing practicing wet plating, just getting started. And I, you know, and I've always been a history buff and that maybe that's what draws me to this process too. Uh, but I feel like I've always been meant to do this process now that I've been at it this long, this is what I've always been meant to do. And not everyone say, can say that they found what they've always meant to do, but this is what I've been meant to do. So I was doing some research on Orlando Scott Goff, um, who is a wet plate artist here in Bismarck, North Dakota, same city as me, my hometown. Uh, back in the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s. And what Goff was attributed to was the first ever photograph of Sitting Bull. Now, there was many photographs of Sitting Bull were taken over the years after Goff's. But to have the first ever photograph, understand before this, it would have had to have been a drawing, a sketch, or a painting of the man. Um, mm-hmm. There was never a photograph taken of this man. So a wet plate artist from my hometown, 135 years ago, captured the first ever photograph of Sitting Bull in the same process that I practice. That was very intriguing to me. I, I just thought there, I felt this immediate connection. And I've gone on to, um, I've gone on to, uh, with, a, with a historian, I commissioned a historian over two years, Lou Hoffermill, over two years, he used to work for, run the, United, the State Historical Society here in North Dakota, one of the head guys up there. Um, I commissioned Lou to write 
an article, a definitive article about Orlando Scott Goff and his life. And um, over a two-year process, Lou did that. That article went into the, the journal um, for the State Historical Society, and they dedicated their entire quarterly journal to this article that Lou and I worked on. And I grabbed the, went up to the State Historical Society, rifled through what they had of photographs, because I'm not much of a poet or a writer. Lou did all that, and I did all the visual stuff. And um, so we made, if, if your listeners are interested in finding this document, if you type in Orlando Scott Goff, um, on, in Google, it's the only peer review paper. It's like link number two on Google. There's not a lot of information on him, um, but the information that is on him, we compose about 16 pages on him. And you'll see there's um, that article that I worked with Lou and there's a wet plate of mine, but I'm going about this a, a long way. Um, so I found out about this first ever photograph of Sitting Bull. And I found out in that research, in that research for this article that I commissioned, I found out that the Smithsonian had some leggings and I believe it was a tuft of hair of sitting bulls that they wanted to give back to the family. And they did this eight year long exhaustive search. You know, obviously the, the street value on the leggings of sitting bull would be well in the millions of dollars. You, I mean, I think you could agree to that, right? I mean, the actual leggings of sitting bull would be worth millions of dollars. So the Smithsonian is not going to give some artifact that's worth potentially millions of dollars up to just anyone, right? I mean, I think we could both agree to that, right? Uh, most definitely. The Smithsonian did their due diligence and they found out that Ernie LaPointe, and Ernie knew this the whole time, and he had told them upon interviews that he was the great-grandson of Sitting Bull. But, you know, there's a lot of people that have made claims that they are the great-grandson or related to Sitting Bull in the past that had no relationship whatsoever. So the Smithsonian had to be careful. And they did their research and with family trees and, and everything that they did, they determined that Ernie LaPointe um, was the great-grandson of Sitting Bull and they gave him and gifted him his family these 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 artifacts these these very important personal items of sitting bulls to the family which was a which was huge right i mean that's important yes almost i mean definitely. it'd be nice if a lot of museums if they could, could um find it in their heart to do these kind of things so i found out i got the name right ernie lapointe well guess what i found looked him up in the the phone book or online and ernie lapointe lives in leeds south dakota it's like oh well i'll just call him on the phone call him on the phone <laughs> picked up the phone, told him who I was, explained to him the Goff image. He knew about the Goff image. I'm not telling Ernie anything. He doesn't know about his own heritage. Um, <clears throat> he's an expert on his grandfather. Um, and I said, well, can I capture you in the same process in the same city as your father, your grandfather, 135 years later? And he was in my studio within a week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. My voice is getting a little hoarse. And um, so he came up. And I, I, I made a portrait of him. And it's a very significant portrait for my work um, because it's called Eternal Field. And your listeners can find that also. Eternal Field, Ernie LaPointe wet plate. If you find that online, you'll you'll see it. It's Ernie standing out in a field. And he would, you know, that, that makeshift studio that I described to you earlier in our conversation? Yeah. He's standing just right outside of that next to a waste management dumpster. Um, it's just right out of frame and there's cars actually going behind him, semis and trucks and stuff driving behind him. It looks like a little river behind him. That's actually a freeway. And he thought like, this guy's crazy because how is he not going to capture these cars? And I knew that the cars were moving too fast to, to actually, um, render them on the image. So that is behind my studio with a waste management dumpster, about five feet out of frame. 
uh, maybe about five yards out of frame. And then there's cars driving behind him as I took that exposure of Ernie. And what's important about that photograph for me is it kicked off the series which it was, again, unintended. Like, you had asked me earlier, okay, you took your pictures of your brother, now what was next? Well, I didn't know mm-hmm. that this was next. Like, it wasn't, oh, I'm just going to go. I didn't have any Native Americans even as friends at the point at that time, right? I mean, how do you decide to do a Native American series when you ha- you've you never met a Native American before, uh-huh. For, formally? Yeah. Okay, and but, but, but what also is important about that is that that was the portrait that opened the door for me at the State Historical Society of North Dakota. So that's portrait one that went into their archive. The State Historical Society of North Dakota decided that that image is significant enough to the history of the North Dakota to be curated here indefinitely in our, in our archive. Mm-hmm. And, and since then, I've, I've got about 600 plates with them, but that was the first plate. So every plate from that moment on followed Ernie's plate. And for me, that's just huge. And then, um, you know, someone up at the State Historical Society, you know, just said to me um, off the cuff, said, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you just take some more Native American portraits and maybe start a series? And, you know, I shared Ernie's uh, portrait. I contacted Dakota Goodhouse, who is um, a professor here at United Tribes. He came out and I shared his portrait. And I was thinking, okay, we're going to do 10 portraits. I'm going to have this little port- 10 portrait series of Native Americans. And then 10 portraits turned into 50 portraits. I got to 100 portraits, and I just said, screw it. If I'm really going to do this, at this point, I was already, this was my life's work. Like, this was already the most important thing that I was capturing at the time. And still to this day, it's my, it's my life's work. Um, I said, let's do 1,000. And when I said that, I just really didn't understand that that was going to take me between 15 and 20 years of, of, of time. Um, yeah. But I wanted to throw, you know, if you're going to throw a goal out there, throw a goal out there. And, and, and that's what I've been chasing. And it's all been word of mouth. And um, since then, so I go from not having any Native American friends, right? Yeah. Um, to actually Calvin Grinnell. The, the elder from the MHA, Mandan Hidatsa Rikara Nation, came into my studio and had a formal naming ceremony with me with witnesses and she, exchanging the gifts and gave me the name Mishde Ekagoche and Hidatsa, which means shadow catcher. And it was the most, the hugest honor that I had ever received, not only in my photographic life, but in my life in general. Like I've never had such an honor bestowed upon me. Um, and at that point, there was just like, I cannot let these people down. Because mm-hmm. now they're no longer strangers coming to my studio. They're my brothers and sisters. Um, and, and, you know, I don't use that word brothers and sisters lightly. I, you know, I've used it also with my, my, my wet plate friends, right? I mean, but it, it's just, it's, it's an endearing word to apply to someone that you feel really close connection to. And that's what I feel with my wet plate brothers and sisters. And I also feel it with my Native American my Native American brothers and sisters, but these people, um, when you're adopted into a tribe, I should say, um, you know, it's not that, it's not, again, using, uh, you know, that club idea. It's nothing mm-hmm. like that. I mean, if they know that I'm, if they know who I am, that I'm Shadowcatcher in Hidatsa, mm-hmm. I mean, these people come in and give me a hug and they call me Hello Brother. I mean, and they've never met me before. I mean, at the opening of the door, this is what I'm experiencing now, which you can about imagine that 
you know, the level of trust that goes into that at that point, you know, it had to have elevated my work, I would think. I, yeah. I feel that. I mean, because because now they're not strangers. Now these are my family. Um, and and when you're adopted into a tribe, you are their family, and they treat you as family. And I've I've been treated with such re- a respect, and 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 I and I've tried to do everything I can to put my Native American friends um, into as much light. And I don't, I shouldn't even, you know, they're just my friends. I shouldn't even say Native American. Just, I, I try to put my friends in as much the best light that I possibly can. And I, I think, um, I was always dedicated to the series, but I think I'm more dedicated than I've ever been now um, because of this gift. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 like you say, it, it seems as though it, you, you've, you've found this extended family and you've been welcomed in and, you know, eight years ago did you could you ever imagined anything like this no you you can't script it and and you know we should also you should also tell your you mentioned a little bit about the documentary but your uh, listeners can and find the documentary it's called balkowich my last name b-a-l-k-o-w-i-t-s-c-h um on vimeo um and i think it's actually streaming on amazon in the uk i believe but if they yeah, can't find it, it in the uk you can get it on vimeo um, it, it tells this this story, and no, I, I can't. But but that's you know going back to your question of well, you took your first exposure, Shane, mm-hmm. back in 2012. What's next? Well, I had no idea. I couldn't have. I, I couldn't have guessed. So how do I to, how do I get here? I get here by just being open, trying to be as generous as I can with my images, um, and uh, you know just sharing with people with open arms and and look at where it's brought me so um whoever knows and that's what i I tell the students when they come in it doesn't have to be wet plating you don't have to fall in love with wet plating find something that you fall in love with in your life find find a passion it it could be anything just find it and chase it because you never know i mean if i can chase this at 44 years of age and now i just turned 52 this last sunday if i can you know, find this path, this creative path. If I can find this and it, you know, hopefully you can do it for money, but if it, if you can't do it for money, the rewards, it doesn't have to always be for money. That's the other Mm, thing. I mean, it doesn't always have to be the, if the the common denominator is profit and loss, I I just, I, I think there's, there's, you're missing something there. There has to be a tangible, there has to be a tangible value to what, you're doing and if you can find that one thing that has a tangible value for what you're doing and maybe you can you know brighten someone else's day or do something else for someone else as you're doing that i mean how can that not be a win for you and them and 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 for instance how can that not be a win for the world if everyone was doing this um Uh, you you would have these synergies you'd have these you'd have this you'd have this collective um this this collective movement to help others be kind to others most definitely most definitely um shane i don't want to take up any more of your time i mean we can have me as long as you want george i don't i you can have me as long as you want george well another question there actually i have got one question and um it's about one of one of your images um Mm -hmm. Which I saw a few days ago, actually, because I, 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 I've seen 
quite a few of your images, but this this one I hadn't seen, and it 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 popped up, and it it intrigued me. And now it might it might actually be a stupid question, thing, but it's it's another picture um, of um, your Native American series, but it's one with a bison. Do you do you know the one I'm talking about? Oh, brothers. Uh, yes, that's the one, brothers. With um, with um, Alan Demery. My, yes, my, my, he's my Hadatsa brother, by the way. Ah, okay. So you see the synergies there? Yeah, most definitely. Most there's definitely. A, there's the, but the Bison's his brother as well, and that's really why the title, it, it the the title applies to both. But because Alan's been in my studio numerous times, I want to say five times, creating significant works, and and you know a lot of the works that have gone around to some of these archives around the world, um, are of Alan, um. So we're, we're brothers by, you know, he's, he's, he's a Datsa. Um, I've, I've been, um, you know, honored by being adopted in. And, um, but the whole idea was the bison is so very important to the Northern Plains, um, Native Americans. And um, what's your question about it? I mean, I've got a long story about it, but. Uh, well, the, um, the, the question actually is, is, is it, is it a real bison? And if so, how did you get it? to stay still long enough to, to get such a sharp picture. Can, can I tell you the the story? Yeah, yeah. You hear, you're not, I mean, I know you wanted to go about an hour, but I mean, that's the beauty of no, podcasts no. really is that it's a kind of an open format. Anyone can turn off anytime they want. So yeah, um, it, it's just, it's just the, this image actually, because, because I, obviously, uh, I, I got to tell you the story then. I, George, just yeah. let me tell you the story. Okay, then. So the Standing Rock Nation, invited me down to capture their bison. They're, they have a, a herd down at Standing Rock. Um, it's a sacred herd, by the way. This isn't just uh, some animals, you know, in a field. They, these are very safe. We had to do prayers and we had smudging and, and things. Before we even went into the field with them, there was a ceremony, that, a small ceremony that we had to have before I was even allowed to be in their presence. Just, I, and I'm, I'm trying to give your your listeners a little bit of perspective. You know what I mean? I, I'm not um, I'm not giving justice to this whole scenario if I don't explain some of these things. No, the fact awesome. is, is I had to be given a blessing before going in. And um, so I chased, you know, I had captured some wild horses uh, for some Native American wild horses, uh, uh, you know, maybe a year before that. And I got some really good images. Horses are, you know, they're in they're interested, they're intuitive with people, you know what I mean? Like um, they, they have an interest. So it was, you know, the horses stuck around. So I went down to Standing Rock being naive, thinking, oh, I'm gonna get some wet plates of some buffalo today. Eight hours, <laughs> set, up, set up my dark room and, and, and unpacked and packed my chemistry six times. Chase these buffalo around for eight hours. And at the end of the day, I got to tell you this, and there's there's another portrait. I don't. You have to look it up. Um, a lone a a a lone buffalo at Standing Rock is is um, the name of this portrait, and it's a far off shot of a, a buffalo. The buffalo is really small, and it's this expansive plane shot. So I was I was not getting photographs. So every time I got the chemicals poured, I would come out to the camera. The camp, buffaloes were right. They'd get me right on the buffaloes every time. By the time I got the three minutes of uh, sensitization time. I got back to my camera. There's no buffalo in sight. 
they were they were miles away i mean they they're like fish in the ocean they 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 move across the plains like they're walking on air and we're in four by fours and we can't keep up so i did this for eight hours and i i really i, I rendered no good photographs of a buffalo and i was distraught i had this native american kid he's about 18 years old was helping me out um so he we came up with the idea i was about to pack it up and he says let's go for one more he says let's find the old man let's find the oldest buffalo the oldest male buffalo in this herd and he's not going to be afraid or he's not he's going to hang out because he, he's not going to be intimidated by us or he's not going to you know shy away from us so that was our idea so we found the old man he had gray hair on his beard and stuff like that and um we got up on him and he was all by himself out here in the plains. I set my camera up. Oh, I got him. I got his flank. He's about 20 yards from my camera. I'm going to get a portrait. So they get me in this little um, ATV and they get me back to my, my dark room, which was, we couldn't even get to where the Buffalo was because the train was so bad. So they had to get me back to this ATV. I'm pouring my plate out in the field. I'm looking out at this Buffalo and this Buffalo starts moving away. We're about a hundred yards away. So I look over and I go, shit, there's, you know, here it is again. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get, in order to get a buff, I figured out in order to get a picture of Buffalo, you would have had to set up in a Buffalo, a stand of some sort and like put out food or something. Or I would have had to bait them over, you know, and had all my chemistry in that tent. That's the only way that I figured out how you could have actually tried to achieve what I was trying to achieve all day. Anyway, so I see this Buffalo walking away from my camera. I see the young kid pick up my camera. My camera, the 8x10 with this big, huge tripod, weighs about 75 pounds. He puts this thing on his shoulder, all on his own, and starts following this buffalo. And it was this surreal thing of having this Native American kid following a buffalo with my camera. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can, you know, you know, romantically, and I always, you know, you can think of the an 18 year old kid back in the day, you know, with his bow and arrow trying to sneak up on the buffalo. You know, you get mm. that. I got that feeling for whatever reason. And I'm a hopeless romantic. So if you think I'm corny, I mean, go ahead, label me corny, but I'm, I'm hopelessly thinking these things. So, so he, I see him walking with his buffalo. So I'm just, shit, okay. So I get my plate sensitized. They get me in the ATV, they rush me down to the camera. Buffalo continues to walk away. I set my camera down and I, I get under the dark cloth. The kid got me as close as he could to the camera and this Buffalo still walking away. I look underneath my dark cloth. I'm sweating just telling you the story, by the way. I just need to, let, I need to explain that to you, Jerry. <laughs> the stress is coming back to me. I get, under the, I get under the fucking dark cloth and I'm looking at the ground glass and I'm focusing on and all I have is this Buffalo's ass. That's all I got. So eight hours. <gasps> Eight hours, and it was it was ninety some degrees that day. Eight hours, failed at the yeah. failed plate, and I got a buffalo's ass as part of this exposure. I freaking I'm just like I'm just at my wits end. So I I lock down the 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 bellows. I get you know I load the plate and I'm like what am I gonna I'm, I'm gonna take a picture of this buffalo's ass. That's what I got. I get to the lens. I grab my lens cap. Remember I'm not using any shutters. This is all manual mm -hmm. stuff. And the kid, guess what the kid does? He whistles, and I'll be damned that that damn buffalo did not turn his head to the left, give me the side of his head, and give me one horn. I took the the, the I took the lens cap off the camera, 1001, 1002, put it on the camera, and I got a lone buffalo at Standing Rock. Oh, wow. And 
the only reason I didn't get the Buffalo's ass and the only reason I got the horn and I got the beard and I got the side of that. And he's still walking away from me, granted. But this damn yeah. Buffalo looked back at this Native American kid for two seconds, the same two seconds that I needed to capture his image. So I got to get to your answer. That's only yeah. a part of my story. You asked me about that, but the other one called Brother. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I did, you know, I still, I got, I got back to the student. I was like, damn the Buffalo, they got the best of me. Like, rightfully so. Like, I was thwarted. Like, no, I I wasn't, you know, I, I did get that shot and, and I'm happy with it. And when I tell that story, that image becomes much more important um, <clears throat> with the story, you know what I mean, than the image itself. But I, I, I got, it's a big landscape and you'll have to look it up, but there's a big landscape and you can see the terrain that they live in. And there was the one buffalo. And to me, it was poignant because what we've done to the buffalo, because there used to be millions, tens of millions of buffalo on the plains. And, and, and I think that one buffalo standing there in the open plains with nothing else around him, no trees or nothing, just as buffalo kind of speaks to where the buffalo are today. You know what I mean? Like we've yeah, devastated absolutely. these animals. And this is a very sacred animal um, to my friends. So... Um, I still felt like the Buffalo got one up on me. Right. I mean, you, you'd have to, after that, it was, it was exhausting. Um, so I thought I'm going to get back at the Buffalo, you know, I'm a, you know, they, they, okay. Buffalo one, Shane zero is where we are. Right. So the, the, the question you're asking me about brothers is, um, how am I going to get a close up of a Buffalo? Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the only answer is I called the MHA nation again, calling out to my friends. And Amanda and Hidatsu Ricker, they're just 30 miles, 40 miles north of me here. And I made a call into them. Um, and I knew that they had a huge buffalo mount on the wall. And guess what they did? They borrowed it to me for the day. So Alan loads it into his truck, brings it to my studio. And this is a massive buffalo. I mean, I've got pictures of Alan standing next to it. And so if the buffalo, the mount is sitting on its, like it would on the wall, it comes up yeah. his neck. That's how big this mountain is. I mean, this this is a, hum a humongous buffalo. So my idea for that shot was I got a big ladder, uh, a pyramid shaped ladder, and I hung the buffalo mount out in a, out in my back, right outside my studio. That photograph was taken 15 feet from the front door of my studio, right, and okay. I and I hung it off a ladder, and um, I had my friend Alan got it. He got into his regalia, and I had my way with the buffalo. The only way that I possibly could figure out how, and it's called brothers, and it, it became such a, um, a lot of people had the same question. But if you understand, um, the, you know, a buffalo, it's impossible. You know, some people, and and even you, or you're asking me, um, George, that th these animals will will kill you. In yeah, I have heard I mean, that. You can't. You can, I mean, there was just an incident not too long ago where. Uh, um, someone got too close with a camera and a buffalo gored her and, and tore her pants off. I think it was a, a girl or a guy. I mean, actually just like totally just like, I mean, they, they will kill you. I mean, and, and, and they're as big as semis. I mean, they are ginormous animals yeah. and they're wild and, and, and you just don't. And that's why, you know, that even that day when I went down there with the buffalo, I, I was with their 
I was I wasn't like, oh, go ahead, go out in the field. It was nothing like that. That's why we were doing, you know, we were doing prayers as well and 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 smudging and stuff to bless me and and to not only to to, to give us a good image that day, but to also to protect us as as we went into the field. I mean, it's part of the part of the deal. So I was with their handlers, like the gentleman who feeds these buffaloes on a daily basis. He was right next to me. I mean, I was not. I, I couldn't have been in a in in possession of, I couldn't have been in, in the company of anyone more qualified. There's probably nobody more qualified on Buffalo in North America than this guy. Right. I mean, he's been taking care of this huge herd of Buffalo for so many years. Oh, um, yeah. I was with an expert. I would not have gone into that environment and be, you know, me and my daughter were 15 yards away from a wild Buffalo. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not, um, that's not something you want to do, um, you know, haphazardly or, you know, you got to respect these animals and people that don't respect oh, them. They, yeah. they, people have been killed. So, um, so it was my uh, brothers came about and, and, you know, then I felt like I've had no desire to like photograph Buffalo anymore because I, I feel like, you know, it's one, they beat me once and I beat them once. And it's like, it's a tie now. It's like, you know what I mean? Like me and the Buffalo, have a, me, me and the Buffalo are, uh, we're on, we're on the same playing field. And, uh, you know, I obviously um, gained respect for them because um, how stupid are you to think that you're going to take a wet play camera out in the field and, um, and get a close up, you know, and then when I did my brothers and I did a couple of shots, there's more than one shot for that series, by the way, but that was, that was my favorite, but people had like some of my, my friends and photography friends they were guessing while well, you set up flash in the studio you know in the flash out in the out in the field i mean there was all kinds of guesses on how i mm-hmm. was able to get these buffalo to hold still and i i held that the whole reveal i i like um i never remember i told you earlier that i don't like to keep secrets yeah like you, yeah. If, you follow, if you follow my work and any of your listeners follow my work you're going to see i always share the reveal like i if i do something cool um a couple weeks back i did a double exposure with two girls bodies melded one on top of the other one where yeah i remember seeing that okay so you know that's all in camera there's no you know a a normal photographer would what you use photoshop i take two two girls and i'd i that's all in camera i've captured a fairy in a bottle um i've captured a a fishbowl with flowers over a lady instead of a lady's head it's sitting on her shoulders i mean i've done a lot of different i I, i'm always pushing myself and i'm gonna try another uh trick photograph this week but my point is is that i don't ever keep these secrets and some people have like said to me well why'd you why'd you show us how it was done because because that's the fun of it right it's like oh i tricked you or i did this but this is what it is and there's something fun about that right yeah, you so must like, it, It's almost like I'm um, a, a magician giving my tricks away at the end. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. but I waited like five days to share the photographs of me and Alan standing next to the buffalo on this ladder. And um, you know, some people understand. Anyone who really knows what a buffalo is like, who's ever had any experience with buffalo, knew damn well that that was not a live buffalo. And a well, lot of yeah. people guessed that it was a, yeah. a taxidermy, but some people thought it was real. Yeah, well, as I say, well, uh, you know, I mean, we we don't have um, buffalo here, so it's not, you know, it thing. But yeah, yeah. I I know I've, I've got a good understanding of how big they are, what they look like, and I was just, I, I was like, uh, I don't understand, you know, because it, it's not even something you, you know, someone would have as a pet. It's a special you know? effect, my friend. I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing analog photography in camera with no photoshop 
Yeah. And, and every time I get one of these images, and there, there's many examples of this. Um, if you look at my Liberty Trudges Through Injustice piece, have you, have mm -hmm. you, have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, I have seen it. the Capitol yeah. building in the back right in the yeah. right yeah. corner? I mean, people accused me of Photoshopping the Capitol building in on that shot. That shot was shot in the same, within 10 feet of where the Buffalo was captured up here in, in my studio. We had, there was 52 collaborators that day. Um, I had a fireman setting off smoke, uh, military grade smoke bombs behind the scene to, to get that, that cloud that you see there um, or the haziness on the people. Um, that was nothing more than a, a panel board painted by my friend of the Capitol building. And I had a, you know, a 19 year old girl just standing behind it, holding it up into the scene. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there was a lot of work going into, into that little element. If you look at that plate, right? I mean, the Capitol building is rather small because I, I wanted it off in the distance, right? It's not right. It's, it's not prominent on the plate, but if you look, if you're paying attention, the Capitol building from Washington, DC is in the wet plate. How is that possible? Well, how that's possible is, is that I found a way to trick you. I found a yeah. way to, to fool and and I was accused of using Photoshop to add the Capitol building when in fact, and when they accused me of this, I posted the picture of the young girl holding up this and it sits in my studio to this day, um, this, this poster on board of the Capitol building. And um, so it's all about what I can do in camera. Yeah. I don't, I don't care. I don't even own Photoshop. I, I use Lightroom. So I don't even, I don't have any Photoshop skills whatsoever. Um, I, I, I think your process though is probably one of the hardest process would be one of the hardest processes to actually do any sort of Photoshop on anyway, you know? Yeah, it, it would be hard, but I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't have Photoshop. I don't have, mm. uh, I had like this, you know, these Bernie memes that Bernie Sanders memes that. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I saw your. Um... In my studio. Well, I, you know, yeah. I didn't do that. I don't have the talent to be able to put Bernie Sanders in my studio. My, my buddy, Chad Nodland, who is the official digital photographer for, for my studio. Um, he did that for me. So I don't, I don't have any, I can't manipulate what you see in my work. And that's one thing we can tell everyone is what you see. You know, other than, you know, cropping, I mean, I'll crop an image every once in a while. I mean, I think an artist has the, should have the, uh, the license to crop his work however he wants. I mean, I'll, I'll yeah. crop in Lightroom. Um, but other than cropping, um, I don't, there's no manipulation whatsoever of anything. I, I remove dust and I crop and then I adjust yeah. the highlights to try to get the scans to look like my plates and they just don't, they just, they suck. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just horrendous, but I, it's, I, I feel, I have, um, I feel better knowing that all of my friends that, you know, try to scan their wet plates have the same issue. We all just struggle really bad trying to represent this silver on glass image or silver on tin image in the digital world. It just doesn't want to be, um, it doesn't want to be scanned. Do you know about the resolution? We, we need to talk about this real quick. And I've talked about it before, but I think your listeners would be interested. Do you know about the resolution of a wet plate? No, no. Okay, I'm writing in molecules of silver. Would you agree with me? Mm hmm Okay, so these are molecules of silver. Yeah. Now, I, I've done some, I did some research on the, the heavy metal silver. Um, do you know how many molecules of silver it takes you have to stack on top of each other to visualize it with <sighs> the human eye? No, I've got no idea. That that's just way out of my what my brain comp comprehend. Two billion. <laughs> two billion. Okay, so it takes two billion molecules of silver to visualize it with the human eye. Okay, I'm yeah. writing in those molecules of silver. So you want to talk grain with me? You want to talk about grain? Um, 1950s film grain versus wet plate grain? 
I would imagine you, you don't take, get a lot of grain. You can take a wet plate and put it under the strongest microscope that you can find on the planet, and you won't get to the pixel of grain that makes up the image. Really? You need an electron microscope to see the pixels of a wet plate. Oh, wow. So these are the most high-resolution photographs. These and the daguerreotypes, these are also silver images. These are the most yeah. high-resolution photographs man has ever made. And, and we abandoned it in the 1880s for something yeah, better. Yeah, and that does, I was going to say, you think that, you know, this was a process that was invented 140 years ago. I've yeah. taken an 8 by 10 and I've got, like, Liberty Treasures to Injustice is blown up 12 feet tall on the side of a building. I, yeah. I mean, even at even at 1200 DPI, I understand, and and that's why we struggle scanning these images because I mean you have an uh, you have an Im an image that has almost infinite, and I I, I use that loosely, uh, has almost infinite resolution, right? And yeah. you're trying to stick it into a a hole that you know you got to put some dots onto it, and it just yeah. doesn't it just doesn't want to do it. There's a, there's another beautiful thing about um, silver. Okay, so we talked about the the longevity that these photographs that I take will outlast any other photograph ever taken. If I took your portrait, that portrait of you, George, would outlast any other portrait ever taken of you. It'll be here a yep. thousand years from now because silver doesn't degrade. Okay. So we know about the longe longe longevity of these photographs. We know about the resolution of these photographs. If I take your photograph, I will take in the most high resolution photograph ever taken of you in your life and will ever be taken of you. We know that about it. Yeah. We also, you know, what's also beautiful about silver. No. Is is it is it uh, innate to Earth? Uh, I um, I wouldn't know. The answer is no. None of the heavy metals—coppers, nickels, platinum, silver, golds—none of the heavy metals. There was never in the formation of Earth when the Earth was solidifying, coming into a, a, a you know a circle, uh, coming into an orb, and and cooling down. There was never enough energy in the formation of earth to create any of the heavy metals. Okay. So the only place there is enough energy to create any of the heavy metals is when a star explodes. So a star explodes, there's enough energy created to create the heavy metals. Those heavy metals are scattered throughout the, the universe. An asteroid, comet, or meteor had to come along and collect those heavy metals, collect these silver molecules, and bring them and crash into earth. And, oh, and that's right. why you find veins of gold here in, you know, in San Francisco and up in Alaska. And you have, you know, you have mine, different composites down in Brazil of different metals down in Brazil. It's yeah. not happenstance. It's not like, oh, if we dig down 300 feet, we're going to find silver a galore. Um, and that's the other reason why we don't make gold here on Earth. We can't make gold. We don't have enough energy to make gold. So you have no. to have an explosion of a star. So all these plates, if you come into my studio, you walk in the door and you look on the wall and you see all these silver and glass images, all that silver was brought to Earth by a comet, asteroid, or meteor. Oh, okay. And so, then we collected it and we put it, made it into silver nitrate and then I made up an image out of it. I mean, if that doesn't get the hair on the back of your neck standing up as a photographer, yeah, I can't help you. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, I mean, yeah, it that's the whole thing. Yeah, and it, you know, it's an amazing process, and it, it's the thing is as well, it, it it's you know, I, I've said this to other people, not just about photography, but about anything. You know, you go back to the industrial revolution, and you you kind of think to yourself, 
how did these people find out about this? How did they how did they learn? How did they you know know to be able to you know by heating two metals together you would get you know another metal and be able to use it to build steam engines and things like this and it's the same with photography how does how does someone come across you know that using silver nitrate to make you know light sensitive well um, i mean one of the big things i mean it it was amazing but one of the big uh, one of the big drawbacks one of the early things that they had to overcome was fixing uh, do you know anything about that fixing the, the image yeah, we, yeah. I mean, they didn't. The first photographs, they would be able to take the photograph. The, the photographers figured out how to get a photograph onto a piece of paper, right? Yeah. But, but they couldn't expose it to any more to light because they couldn't fix it. So they keep yeah. these photographs in boxes. And then I'd think, oh, George, come over to my house tonight. I got a new photograph to show you that I took today. You come over. We'd use one candle at the bit in the middle of dark in a dark room, and I'd open up my box just a little bit and let you look at it. I close the box right away because I couldn't let that candlelight get to my photograph and overexpose yeah. it because you continue. Yeah, it, you had no way of stop exposing things. So I mean, but a lot of people don't understand this about photography that there there was all these little baby steps that had to be achieved. You know what I mean? Do you know what the fixer is for the wet plate process or the original? No. Potassium no. cyanide in liquid form. Uh, that's pretty dangerous. Pretty I think. dangerous, right? Yep. Yep. Gets a, gets them in your eye. You're dead in about 14 seconds. Really? <sighs> yeah. It stops up to as a nurse. It stops the uptake of oxygen to the cells at the at the cellular level. So it kills you. <sighs> I mean, that's what the, obviously cyanide tablets were made out of. So, um, so yeah. you know, and I do have. I don't. I don't use potassium cyanide. It's, I. It was one of the things when I was learning. I said to my wife, I said, "Damn." One of the chemicals here is potassium cyanide. And uh, as an oncology nurse in particular, you know, working with dangerous chemicals for my career, um, I knew that this was nothing to mess with. Uh, but I do yeah. have some brothers and sisters that still use it. And um, and but I use a uh, rapid fixer, which is, you know, like hypo fixer. Um, from yeah. The, oh, OK. Yeah. So it's something rather safe. So but yeah. So they were dealing with potassium cyanide in liquid form as a fixer. Wow, yeah, uh, that that that's the whole thing. It's um, you know, it, it, the how dangerous it actually was. Yeah, it was, and the aerotypes they were high, they were dying of heavy metal poisoning years. I mean, just shortly after practicing, they didn't realize, you know, they were heating up these metals and these um, this, this mercury. They were heating this up, and they were breathing this mercury vapors in, um, and and they were, uh, you know, they were going insane. So these photographers, these young photographers, were losing their minds. I mean, that was also a very common problem um, with the early photography. So it, it was a it was a dangerous. Uh, proposition to be a photographer back in the in the early days i mean the mad hatter from disney i mean people people think that the mad hatter is kind of like this funny kind of character he's not funny he's 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 dying of heavy metal poison and he's losing his mind and people don't Mm. realize that hatters used to use mercury to uh to make felt out of rabbit's fur and um it was that process that would give these guys mercury poisoning and um it was the daguerreotype process that would give photographers mercury poisoning as well um, it was, it was not, uh, it was not pleasant. There's, I, I read an account of, um, a cup getting in from the, the dark room into the family's room and like killing some of the family members, um, in the kitchen, um, of potassium cyanide. So, um, yeah, it wasn't anything to mess with. 
No, most definitely. Or I, if you are to mess with it, and like I said, I do have modern day wet plate friends that use it. Um, you just got to have. You, there's got to be a deep respect for, um, deep respect for what you're doing. Yeah, or, and what you're definitely. handling. But it, it it makes for an interesting photograph. It makes it it adds the challenge, right? It adds to the breadth and the and the width of this this challenge of making these plates and all these little all these little things are just it just makes it interesting it's it's not just clicking a shutter and 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 um it's i'll go back to it again it's about the intent of the photographer and um you don't get your wet plate taken without uh you know wanting to have it done you 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 have to be involved and the sitter is very very important in that i mean i can do you know wonderful wet plate work but if my sitter doesn't cooperate or can't hold still uh, for these long exposures um i i don't get the results so it's it's not always about my performance it's also about my sitter's performance and i think the sitters you know after their first exposures underneath their belt they they get that feel for that they understand that they were um involved in making this photograph and how, how often Think about all some of the most historic photographs ever taken, right? How often, I mean, a lot of them are very candid photographs. Um, you know, the Vietnam War, for instance, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, when that, that, that monk burnt himself with the gasoline or yeah. um, there was that execution in Vietnam. Remember that photograph? I mean, yeah, yep. those subjects were not involved in that photograph. No, any no. You know what I mean? These were just, these were documentary um, photographs. They were just... Uh, uh, photojournalism, um, yeah. in, in a large part, um, it's hard to be a photojournalist with a wet plate camera. I mean, uh, I can't even get Buffalo to cooperate, you know, <laughs> how, how am I going to get guys on a, on a war? And that's why, you know, those war going back to let's, you know, we can finish this up by going full circle. You started mentioning Brady and, and I'm looking yeah. at this Brady business card I have here. Um, and that's why, you know, those Brady photographs, a lot of them were of the aftermath. They yes. were, you know, they weren't of the, the cannons firing, right? They were of all oh, the dead bodies. I mean, a lot of them were the dead bodies and the devastation after because yes. Brady couldn't. It was very hard to get your camera and your chemicals and pour in a plate and get in the action. And and, yeah. and that's what I found out with the with the buffalo is that it was very hard to get in with the action. And let yeah, alone it, a war going on, you know. Yeah, it's it's the the process really does only lend itself to portraits and still life or after the event sort of stuff. It's not you know it, it's not a run and gun process. Oh, and, and, but that but then what is that? So we so let's not look at that as a negative, okay? Let's no, look at no. that as a positive, though, just for a second, and think about guess what that lends itself to? It lends itself to composition. Yeah. And guess what? There isn't a lot of con we took more digital photographs and I said this in my TEDx talk. We did more digital photographs today than in the first 150 years of photography. There's really not a lot of composition going on today. No. And we're no. taking more photographs than ever. So this older process it makes you slow down, it makes you respect the process, it makes you think about what you're trying to capture and you know it's, it's an expensive process too. I said I I've said it more than once is if if I could fix photography Every time you clicked your iPhone camera, it cost you a buck. We would fix photography today. Yeah. Why, why, and why, why, do you want to, why do you need to fix photography, Shane? Well, I want to fix photography because I think we have a glut of information. We have too many photographs. If everyone was charged a buck for every photograph they ever took, there'd be a lot yeah. less photographs taken, and there'd be a lot better photographs taken. Well, well that, yeah, that, I, I mean, I think most people that shoot film 
feel exactly the same way. way. You know, exactly. It doesn't even have to be a buck. Sometimes it's more than a buck, right? My, my yeah. piece of black glass, every 8 by 10 by the time I cut it down, costs me 12 bucks. Oh, really? Yeah. Just in glass. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking yeah. about the silver nitrate I put on it or the collodion or, you know, any of the other things that go into it. Yeah. So it's... um. It, it's yeah, I, like I say, you know, a, a film photographer, thirty-six shots, and you know, it's you, 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 you make, you try to make every one of them thirty-six images count because the cost, not only of buying the film, but also the processing, you know, everything else. It's uh, it, it's an expensive hobby. <laughs> It's a very expensive hobby, but I, I just think if, if 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 we got away from this free photography, like oh I don't like that, I'll delete and take another one. If we got away from that, um, I think there'd be a lot better photographs. Um, mm. I just feel that there'd be a lot less photographs, and maybe I'm just um, I don't know. Well, I I just think it's you know it's the modern age. It's um, you know, my kids are permanently attached to their phone and the amount of selfies and stuff they put up and, you know, the most mundane things that they will photograph because as far as they're concerned, it doesn't cost them anything. And, and you know, in all honesty, they're throwaway photographs because if they lost one today, they could take another one tomorrow. You know, that, that that's kind of their attitude. And and it is when you have that when you have that tool and it's a beautiful yeah. tool. Don't get me wrong. I'm not not, you know, I'm, I'm on this you know, this podcast to give you my take on this, George, I'm not by any means knocking modern day photography at all. But I mean, if you, if you have a, a wet plate artist who's practicing an, an archaic form of photography on the podcast, you know, I've got to give you my slant on it. And, and, and it, oh, it, it, does, it doesn't do me any good to just, you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm not knocking modern day photography. I just see, I see the problems with it. And, mm. and, and, and then, but modern day photographers, they've looked at me and said, well, why would you make, you know what I mean? Like, why would you capture, why would you use that process? It's so difficult when it'd be so much easier to do the same thing in another process. So, uh, you know, um, it, it go it goes both ways, but even like when I captured Greta Thunberg, I mean, I went down there with only four glass plates available. Like, yeah. can you imagine me telling you, George, that you're going to go get to capture one of the most, uh, you know, iconic young females of our time and you only get four exposures, um, you know, you would have said, that's why, why would you limit me? I mean, why, yeah. what are you talking yeah, about? Like, that's insane. You would say, that's insane. That's dumb. No, your camera only has four shots. That's all you get. And if you accidentally click the, the shutter, getting out of the truck, that's one of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's just a different way to look at things. And um, Oh, most definitely. And I, I, you know, I think it's, um, you know all these different um, ways of uh, of producing an image. They're all great in in their own way. Some of them, you know, take a lot longer, but the end result is so much better. It's always about the end result, my friend. It's always. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? There's. I've got. I've got people. I they change lenses like they change underwear. You know what I mean? They're always constantly changing something. It it doesn't matter what camera. I've seen the most glorious pinhole camera uh, photographs in the world. Um, and that didn't even have a lens. That mm. camera didn't even have a lens. So don't tell me that this is about this is photography is not gear driven. Like gear is not going to solve your photography problem, right? No. I mean, gear is not going to make you a better photographer because you can hand the the the, the cheapest processed 
film or whatever you want to do or camera with a with a plastic lens for god's sakes to someone who really knows how to take photographs and guess what they're going to get a good photograph yeah and all that matters it doesn't matter that it was taken on a uh, a five dollar instamatic camera does it it doesn't matter what all that matters nobody asks about that what they ask about is the photograph does a photograph yeah. stand on its own if the photograph stands on its own who gives a shit how you got there it's irrelevant and i try yeah. to tell the students that it's like just get there just get to the final image i don't care if you have to stand on your head do jumping jacks beforehand whatever you think you got to do to get to that image do it and let the image speak for itself uh, I totally agree. The, the 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 final image is what it's all about. That that that's the the thing that counts in the end. Like you say, doesn't matter how you've gone about it, but it's the final image. Shane, I want to thank you very much for coming on tonight, or uh, tonight here today, or the late afternoon in in North Dakota. Yeah, it was, um, it was a pleasure. Would you like to give out your uh, website address or, um, you know, your socials? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy. Um, my website's kind of an archaic website. Um, if you if you just go to Google and type in Balkowich, B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H, and then wet plate two words, you're going to find everything you'd ever want to know about me. Um, if you're interested in the documentary, um, if you don't see it on Amazon, it's at the same name, Balkowicz. It's an hour-long documentary. These two first-time filmmakers decided to follow me around for a year and a half with zero budget, their first documentary, I should say. And they put this documentary together on me. Not every day a large format photography documentary comes out. So I, I think maybe your listeners would be interested in that. Um, you can find it on Amazon. If you can't find it on Amazon, you can you can get that on Vimeo. Um, and I do have, uh, there's, I'm sold out of my limited edition, uh, Northern Plains, my first volume. So there's going to be four volumes over, over the 20 years. So every 250 plates, I'm going to do another book. Um, and I'm going to start working on volume two this year, but I do have some trade edition versions still available out on Amazon. Uh, it's called Northern Plains, Native Americans, a modern wet plate perspective. So, um, those are some things, but I, th I think if you just go to Google and type in my name and wet plate, uh, there's plenty of information out there um to learn about it. and if you want to um follow some pretty damn cool wet plate artists uh friends of frederick scott archer is the group on facebook uh, send over a uh, member request and i'll approve it and you can see what we're all up to so it's it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure george and uh thanks for having me on the show oh thanks for coming along shane uh, you know it's it's been really really interesting talking to you um all about your photography and your process so, yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome.